Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, uh, and this is the beginning of the Palm Sunday story. Uh, Let's share in God's good word together. At the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching in the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Love lays down its life. That's what love does. We come to the conclusion of our sermon series tonight and Easter Sunday, and we look at what love does, and love does lots of things, but ultimately what love does is it lays down its life. That's what love does. That's what Jesus, love itself, did for us. Bob Goff, uh, in his book, Love Does, uh, had this quote, and I think he's exactly right. He says, I used to think there were some prisons you couldn't escape, but now I know there's no place I can go where God can't rescue us. And the reason Bob knows that, the reason I know that, the reason you can know that tonight is because of what Jesus has done on the cross and in the resurrection. The cross was the most cruel, worst form of torture that the world had ever known. And yet, Jesus' love conquered it. Even at the worst that the world could do to Jesus, Jesus overcame with love. That's what love does. So if you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out. And we're going to take a look at, um, really, the story from Palm Sunday to the cross. Um, If you wanted to look at that, it starts really at Luke chapter 19, uh, what we read just a moment ago at about verse 29. And by Luke 23, just four chapters in, Jesus is dead. And so if you want to look at that entire passion event, it really uh, is is concluded in less than four chapters. As a way of introduction, you, you have to ask yourself, how in the world did they get from here to there? How did they get from Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, you are the king, you are the king. Now, I would remind you that they did not have a democratic process in that day. And so you might ask yourself, as an adult, if you had someone and you had no electoral process, no democratic process, and some guy that was not your leader started showing up up and 5,000, 7,000, 3,000 people, wherever he showed up, thousands of people followed him, and they did whatever he said. How would you feel about that? Not elected, just showing up with thousands of people doing whatever. And so they said, Hosanna, you are the king, you are the Lord, we're going to follow you, whatever you say. And by the end of the week, he was on a cross, and the sign above his head read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And they took his hands and they put nails through them and they took his feet on either side 
And you'll note that this is not very high off the ground because they use crosses and they line them along the roads so that every person, every Jew, every person who was occupied by the Romans knew that if you crossed them, this is what would happen to you. It was a very clear message of what happened to the people who crossed the occupying force of Rome. So, long live the king. That's really what Hosanna means. Long live the king. And again, the king was the ruler of the people. We don't have a king in our country, but they did. And they remembered King David, and they remembered the beauty of that, and and how good times were when David was the king, or when Solomon, his son, was king. And so, something really interesting happens. Jesus intentionally chooses a time when all of Israel would be gathered in Jerusalem. He chose his moment, and this was it. He knew that in a few days the city would begin to swell and that he would come into a city overfilled with people pouring into the streets because they had to come for Passover when they remembered that God had saved them from the Egyptians. They had been enslaved for 400 years under Egypt and this night was the night that they came from all over the country into Jerusalem to be made right with God and to remember what God had done for them. And so in order to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, people would know this very well. It goes like this. See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Now, why is that important? Well, it's interesting. I I was re-reminded of this this week as I was preparing that this is the only time in the Bible that records Jesus on a donkey. Isn't that odd? That Jesus would choose this time and this moment to ride a donkey from the Mount of Olives down into the city of Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Well, there's, there's a reason, and it goes back to Zechariah 9.9. You would think if Jesus was a donkey rider, which he was not normally, that when he had to come all the way from Nazareth in Galilee, he was a Galilean, hung up here at the Sea of Galilee, that he would have ridden a donkey from Nazareth the 80 to 90 miles all the way down to Jerusalem. But he didn't. He walked that. So why in the world would Jesus get on a donkey to ride, you know, maybe a quarter mile, half a mile, when he just walked 80? It wasn't about his lack of energy. It was that Jesus was saying to all the world, when when the whole city filled up with Jews, I am the promised one. I am your king. I am coming. I am your king of kings and Lord of lords. It wasn't that he needed the donkey to come in on. It wasn't his norm. He was fulfilling the very prophecy of the prophet Zechariah thousands of years earlier. And as Jen showed you at the children's moment, the people went wild. They jumped up and down and they shook their palm branches and they laid down their clothes and they said, you're the one. We're looking for you. We are ready to be liberated from Rome. Take us, Jesus, to that place that is like heaven where there's enough for everybody to eat and we're free to do as we please and we're no longer under the boot of Rome. They went wild. And of course, the current leadership of the Jews who were working with the Romans to try to keep the peace and, and to try to keep things moving forward, they'd even rebuilt the temple uh, with help of, of some money um, from the Roman government. They were afraid. And they asked Jesus in the scripture we were at just a moment ago, Quiet down your disciples. These crowds are getting out of hand. These people are making us nervous. Rome is watching. What are you doing, Jesus? You better quiet them down. And Jesus says, listen, I could try, but if if they don't, even the rocks will cry out because the Lord God himself has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Turn your life towards me. 
And so what does Jesus do when he comes from the Mount of Olives? Well, he goes to the temple, as was his custom. Luke 19, further in the story, says this, Then he, meaning Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, It is written, My house shall be a house of what, friends? Prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, if it wasn't bad enough with the crowd jumping up and down saying, Jesus, we'll follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus was bothering the commerce. He was messing up their business plan because if there's 40,000 Jews on a normal day and there's about to be 200,000 Jews at the Passover, this was where the money was to be made. It's kind of like the 4th of July weekend um, at the lake. It's when you make your money or spring break if you're at the beach. There's only a certain time, and that's when you do all your commerce, and that was the way it was. And, and so this, this was, would go on over and over again. So I want to show you the way the temple is set up. This is a replica of uh, the way Jesus, first century Judaism, uh, this would, was the temple that was rebuilt. This is the temple here. Uh, these are the outer courts where Jesus would teach. Um, and over here is the money changers. All right, and so let's say that you needed to have a lamb for the priest to take the lamb in here and go into the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice on your behalf so you could be made right with God and participate in the Passover. Well, let's say if you came from Nazareth and you had a lamb, you're trying to get there, uh, that lamb might die on the way. Well, you can't use a dead lamb. You have to have a live lamb. It has to be a certain kind of lamb. Uh, and if you're going to make an offering, uh, you might bring a shekel, but guess what? You couldn't use your normal shekels. You couldn't come in and out of there with normal shekels. You had to go over here and get those exchanged for a temple shekel. And guess what? Do you think the temple shekel was more or less than your shekel? The exchange rate was not good. Let's just say that. And so they could make a ton of money. 200,000 Jews had to come to the money changers, and they were about to be robbed. It's supposed to be a, a house of prayer, but they were robbing the people the very people that were supposed to bring people and connect people to God in the temple were the very people who were pushing people away and robbing them and taking advantage of them in the whole time they're trying to be made right with God. And it infuriated Jesus because Jesus' whole point of coming to earth was to connect people to a loving, good, good Father. And so Luke goes on and he says, every day Jesus was teaching in the temple and he would have been teaching in that outer court. And the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people kept looking for a way to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were spellbound by what they heard. They knew that they needed to do something about Jesus before things got out of hand, but they couldn't do anything about it. You see, and, and what they decided was if Jesus wouldn't silence the crowds, they would silence him. That's what they decided. They asked him to quiet them down. He couldn't do it. And if he wouldn't silence them, they would silence him. Now, why was this so important to them? Why were they so afraid? Well, if you zoom out of the, of the temple and the temple courts, what you see is that Rome was watching. Rome was right by them. Now, this is the temple. You might have noticed that from the last photo. But do you know what this is? This is the Antonia Fortress. This is what Rome had built adjacent, actually connected to the temple. You see, they were very much politically engaged, the religious leaders of Jesus' day and the Roman Empire, so much so that they are actually connected. And so this is where Pilate is, and all the guards and all the leaders of Rome were watching everything that Jesus did. They watched all the money changers. They watched all the teaching in the courts. They could overhear what he was saying and made him nervous, and rightly so. Jesus actually, as he looked over the city before he came in, he weeps over the city. 
because he knows what's about to happen. And about 40 years after Jesus' uh, life and death, between 66 and 70 AD, Rome, Titus, uh, the son of the emperor at the time, comes in and kills 600,000 Jews, wipes Jerusalem to the ground. The very things that they were worried about came to pass. The very things that the religious leader said was going to happen, happened, but it happened not because of Jesus, but because of the people trying to overthrow Rome in, in this time frame. So the things that Jesus wept about came to be and the things that the leadership was afraid of happened. 600,000 Jews killed at the hands of the Romans. And so what do they do? They don't want this to happen. They're afraid that this is going to happen. And so they, the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus. We're at point two if you're following along. And in Luke 22, uh, it says this. Now the festival of the unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was near. Um, we, we call it Palm Sunday, but we don't really know that Jesus came in on a Sunday. It could have been Monday. It could have been Tuesday. All we know is that it was close to Passover, which would be Thursday. It would be the, the Thursday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. And, and that's why Easter moves, because that's the way uh, the calendar works. It's on the lunar calendar. And so the chief priests and the scribes, they were looking for a way to put Jesus to death because they were afraid of the people. Afraid of the people. So let me ask you, why... Did people want Jesus dead? Because they were, say it with me, afraid of the people. Now it's really important that you see this. Because I want you to see what fear does. I want you to see how it changes the world. And I want you to see how it kills the innocent. Because fear of the people drives us to do horrific things. And that's still around today. Being afraid of the people it leads to tragedy. And at Passover, of course, the city swelled from 40,000 to 200,000. And, and with all that swelling, people were like, oh my goodness, you better do something about Jesus. You must do something about Jesus. And of course, Judas would love for Jesus to uh, become the ruler. That's what he wants. And so he pushes Jesus' hand. And he makes a deal with the religious leaders. And they are thrilled about it. And so the scripture says this, he, Judas, went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers of the temple police about how he might betray him to them. And they were greatly pleased and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and began to look for an opportunity to betray to them when no crowd was present. Now that was the tricky part. How do you get Jesus when he's alone? And only those closest to him would know that. I also want to point out that, friends, this is not really about money. I mean, Judas was happy to get the money, but he gives it back, he throws it back to them. So it wasn't based solely on Judas' greed. It was something bigger at play. And that was that the powers that be, the people that knew, were afraid of their future. And they needed Jesus to do the things they needed Jesus to do. Now the hard part for me is, if I look closely at my life and I'm really honest, there are times that I really need Jesus to do the things I need Jesus to do. For me. Or for the church. Or for our political system. Because Jesus, the world's messed up and it's dangerous and I need you to do this. I need you to do it right and I need you to do it now. And whenever we find ourselves in that place, just know that pain is soon to follow. Because God is good and whatever Jesus is doing is good for you and for the world. So Jesus gathers his friends around him on this Passover night. They have gathered to remember God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And it's on that very night 
that as Andy shared last weekend, he watched the disciples one after another go. And as they, they start to go to the upper room, they stop and they look in, in my mind's eye at the bowl where they're supposed to stop and wash their feet and then wash someone else's feet. But they don't. They bypass it. And, and as I figured in my mind's eye, I see Jesus watching them and he, he, and he sees Peter's like, oh, Peter, the rock, he's going to do it. And he doesn't. He goes on in. Andrew, oh, he was, you know, one of the very first to follow me. Andrew will stop. Not on this night. You see, they had other things on their mind. And it wasn't until they went to the table that Jesus would find out what was on their mind if he didn't know already. And the scripture says it like this. You see, they're sitting there at the table that's supposed to show about their unity. And a dispute arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Can you imagine? Jesus, knowing that Judas is about to betray him, that Peter is about to deny him, and all the, his friends want to talk about is not what Jesus is about to go through, but, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? It's amazing that the story doesn't go, and there was a massacre. Jesus lived, and the other 12 died. That's what you would expect at that story. But that's not what happens. That's not what happens. Jesus, of course, picks up the towel and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, you, you might say, well, how in the world does this happen? Well, in ancient meals, it would look like this. You would lay down. Uh, this is called the triclinium. Tri, meaning three, has three sides. The servants would come in the middle, and you would lay down, and you would eat. And so you would see it's really easy to wash their feet because their feet are all the way at the outside. It's, it's not hard to do at all. Now, what you might find interesting, as I do, is that the order of this table uh, is not like it is today. It's not where uh, the, you know, there's a head of the table, like for a head of state and everybody else outside. Uh, at a triclinium, it looks like this. The seat of honor is, is place number one, and it's on this side. And then the two people closest to Jesus are going to sit in spot two and spot three. Now, we know who these people are. We know that one of them is John, the beloved, the one that Jesus loved, because the scripture tells us that John laid his head on Jesus' breast. So as he leans back on Jesus, he can't do that from any other spot but either spot two or three. Make sense? Who's at the other spot of honor? Judas. Scripture tells us that Jesus says it is the one who is dipping his hand in the sup with me at the same time. And you can't do that unless you're sitting in spot two or three. Now what does that tell you about Jesus? Knowing full well that Judas is about to betray him, he has yet one final act to bless him, to love him, to bring him close, and to show him honor. And he does. And Judas betrays him anyway. And the story continues. So Jesus gets up and he, he leaves from this meal. And he goes out and does the only thing that he knows to do. It was his custom, um, and he would do this regularly. He would be in Jerusalem in the day, but at night he would go out to the Mount of Olives and he would pray. So Jesus came out and he went, and as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. He kneels down, and he prays this prayer. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now you'll notice that just a few moments 
earlier, the disciples had said, well, we really don't care about your will, Jesus. Just tell us who's the greatest. So he is doing really the exact opposite of what he has just been a part of moments before. He's modeling this beautifully and perfectly before his disciples. Not my will, but yours be done. And I don't know if, if this is true or not, but in my mind, he learned that from his mom. That when the Holy Spirit, the angel, comes to her as a young woman, as a young girl of, of 12, 13, 14 years of age, and says, you are going to be um, pregnant with the Holy Spirit, with the child of God, with the Messiah. She says, let it be done with me according to your will. Sounds a lot like his mom's prayer, doesn't it? That he's learned this. He's, his soul has been so soaked in learning how to follow God that this is his, um, his response. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to do this. Yet he's obedient even unto death. And of course, he prays this prayer, and the next person that he sees is Judas. Judas comes at night when Jesus is alone outside the city walls, out at the Mount of Olives, and he gives him a kiss. And Jesus asks him, Judas, is, is this how you betray me with a kiss? And then he says to the others, well, why didn't you get me? I'm at the temple every day. You had plenty of opportunity to arrest me then. Why are you coming at night in the middle of my prayer time outside the gates? What are you doing? And there's a scuffle, and Peter cuts off uh, one of the ears of the men who would arrest him. And Jesus, in that moment, takes the ear and puts it back on the man and heals him. Incredible grace. Incredible love. This is the character of God. Always loving. Always kind. Always healing. This is who Jesus is. And so this story continues in Luke 22. He comes out. And they seized him, and they led him away, and they brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. Now, I want to show you some photos from this area. I want to show you what the Mount of Olives looks like. Uh, this is the top of the Mount of Olives. It actually looks down uh, to the east gate um, and into the Temple Mount. You can see the Dome of the Rock here, which is a holy site for Muslims now. And you can see the, the Temple Mount is huge. Uh, it goes all the way back and around. And this is where Jesus uh, would have been teaching. It, you can still go there today. But the Mount of Olives, uh, I'm basically taking that shot from the Mount of Olives down here is known as the Kidron Valley. And so you can see just the incredible difference in elevation. And so it's not an easy trek from the mountains uh, of, you know, the Mount of Olives over to Jerusalem or vice versa. Yet Jesus was making this every day. If you go down the mountain uh, a ways, uh, you will come to incredibly huge uh, graveyards. Uh, they, the, as we've talked about before, the ground is super rocky. You, it, you can't bury people there um, down in the ground, and so you have to bury them above ground, and just thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of graveyards um, of people in that graveyard just right there. And so this is where Jesus is. He actually goes out to the place of death and is praying and asking God for this very thing to pass over him. And, and he is very, it's very salient in his mind what's coming as he is praying in this area. If you go down even further, then you have the garden itself. And then you can look back up um, at Jerusalem. And this is where Jesus is praying. They seize him and they take him away. And they take him to Caiaphas' house. Now that's not at the Temple Mount. It's at the very edge of town. And they're doing this at night. Which is not something you would do. One, they have no authority to just grab Jesus at night uh, without any... Uh, real charges against him um, and they're not taking him to the temple and they're not taking him to Pilate they're taking him to the house of the high priest and so I want to show you um, what happens 
they take Jesus, and, and tradition tells us, and, and if you go there today, Chantal and I were there in April, um, basically what they would do is they would take cisterns uh, where they had collected water, uh, and they would make them prisons. And so they would lower Jesus down into that hole by those ropes and leave him there. They, they didn't have to have bars or any of that. They just lowered you down in a hole, they cut the ropes, and then you were stuck until they decided to give you ropes to put back on to pull you out. And so um, that's at Caiaphas' house. You can go there uh, even today. Uh, it's known uh, as St. Peter Galicantu. Um, so you can see the Mount of Olives here, the Kidron Valley here, the temples here. They go down to the lower city and all over here to Caiaphas' house. And this is where Jesus is now. If you're trying to kill an innocent man, it takes a lot of work. You've got to get your story straight, and you have a lot of people involved. It's going to take all the religious leaders. It's going to take Caiaphas. It's going to take the council of the Sanhedrin. Then it's going to take Pilate. It's going to take Herod. It's going to take him back to Pilate and ultimately to the cross. It's going to take five different trials, five different hearings in order for them to get enough evidence, false evidence, to get Jesus on the cross. It's taken a lot of work, but they're nervous. They're afraid of the crowds. They're afraid of what's going to happen. And so Luke 22 says it this way. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. This is at Caiaphas' house at the edge of town at night. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, Jesus, who is it that struck you? And they kept heaping many other insults on him. They did this through the night of what would have been Thursday night. So when day came, right, they've they've already beat him and imprisoned him and cursed at him all night long. And then when morning breaks, They assemble the rest of the elders of the people, the chief priests, the scribes. They gather them together, and they bring them to their council, the Sanhedrin. Now, what's important to note about this is the Sanhedrin is made up of 70 Pharisees, and the the Pharisees are only allowed to meet at certain times during the day. But you can see they were already starting to trump up the charges at night at the edge of town. And so the next day, the next morning, they gather other people around them, and they begin really what would be the second hearing. And as they do this, friends, I want to remind you that they were very carefully controlled, all of these hearings, who was going to be there, when they were going to be there, how they were going to go, so that they could kill Jesus. They were going to only ask him certain questions because they needed certain answers to be able to take to Rome so that they could get him killed. And then you come to the third trial. And so now they're going to take him to Pilate. Typhus's house is all the way down here. And they're going to move him all the way to Pilate. Now that may not seem like such a big deal on a little model. Uh, but let me show you what the road looks like coming out of Caiaphas' house. Uh, Chantel and I, again, we're here uh, at the bottom of Caiaphas' house. This is the road. And you can imagine after being up all night, beaten half to death, you're, this, these are the roads you're taking to Pilate. And so then the scripture says this. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor. Is that a true story? No. Jesus never said that. Jesus took a coin and he said, Whose face is on this? That's Caesar's. Pay to Caesar what Caesar's give to God what's God's. He never said that. That is a lie. But that was their story because they thought that that would get Rome on board. And saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king which he was silent up to that point. But it is the truth, he was the king. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent, and they said, he stirs up the people by teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee where he began, even to this place. Now Pilate, looking for a way out, he hears this and he goes, wait, 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 Jesus is a Galilean? 
This is good news. I don't have jurisdiction over Galilee. That's Herod's. I can pass this off. I'm out of this deal. And so he sends him to Herod. Scripture says when he learned that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him off to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time because of the Passover. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had been wanting to see him for a long time because he had heard about him and was hoping to see him perform some sign. He knew that Jesus had raised people from the dead. He had seen Jesus, or knew of Jesus giving sight to the blind and the lame to walk and the deaf to hear, those who had fevers to be relieved of them. He was thrilled. So he questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus gave him no answer. So, Herod had a beautiful palace in Jerusalem. A beautiful palace. You see, this fourth trial, he had already been at Caiaphas' house. After the night, he had another trial outside Caiaphas' house with the Sanhedrin. Then he goes to Pilate for his third, and then now out to Herod for his fourth. And Herod really just, you know, wanted to be entertained. He wanted Jesus to do some neat tricks for him. And so, uh, this is Herod's palace all over here. And, and you might notice that the, the palace of Herod is straight across from the money changers, by the way. He made sure and got his cut of that deal. If, if you saw the money changers, it'd be right here. So Caiaphas is here. They take him to Pilate. Pilate says, nope, not on my watch. I'm going to send him back to Herod. Herod is here. Herod doesn't get anything out of him, so he sends him back to Pilate. So now he's at his fifth trial. And look what happens. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he'd been wanting to see him for a long time. Because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see him perform some sign. Jesus didn't. And then when he questioned him at some length, Jesus gave him no answer. And the chief priests and the scribes stood by. They were vehemently accusing him the whole time. They were trying to make the trial go the way they wanted. But even Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt. And they mocked him. Then they put an elegant robe on him. And they sent him back to Pilate. And that same day, Herod and Pilate, what happens? They become friends with each other. And before they had been enemies. You see, Jesus is just a pawn in a much larger political game between the leadership of the Jews and Rome. And if if they need to use Jesus to make another political alliance, so much the better. And so Pilate and Herod become friends. And then you have the fifth trial with Pilate in chapter 23. 13 to 16. It says this, Pilate then called together the chief priest. I love this about Pilate. He's had enough. He's like, I've been trying to get this guy off, but I can't. So I'm going to bring the chief priest in, the leaders, and the people. I'm going to bring them all together. We're going to have the meeting, right? This isn't going the way I want, so I'm going to get all the people, and I'm going to tell them what's what. You brought me this man as one who was perverting the people, and here I've examined him in your presence and not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death, so I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Well, at this point, as Christians were like, well, yay, Pilate, good for you. You know, you got some sense. Friends, flogging was the worst thing that could happen to you next to crucifixion. They had it down to such an incredible torture that they knew exactly how many lashes would kill a man. And so they just backed it up one to get you as close to death as they could. They would take um, a piece of wood, they would tie straps to it, and then they would take these metal balls and put spikes on it and hooks on it, and they would hit you in the back so they would pull out pieces of your flesh. And if you didn't bleed to death, you would just be at the edge of death. This is what Pilate did to our Lord. And so he thought that would be enough. I mean, to see someone go through this uh, would be enough to make most of us sick or turn away, but not the people in Jesus' day. The scripture says they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Their voices 
prevailed. Pilate had the power to stop it. Herod had the power to stop it. Caiaphas had the power to stop it. The Sanhedrin had the power to stop it. None of them did. Their voices prevailed. And so the scripture says, when they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And what does Jesus do in the face of all this? He says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. You don't find that incredible? The centurion certainly did. He listened to the words of Jesus. He had never seen anything like it. He had seen hundreds of men, maybe thousands of men, go to the cross and curse those that crucified him and, and, and yell blasphemies to all the crowd, but not this man. He said nothing until he said, Father, forgive them. Which led the centurion to say, Surely this man is God's son. He is who he says he is. He is the Messiah. Now, this weekend is also Confirmation Sunday. So at 1045, we're going to welcome 25 awesome young men and women who are ready to give their life for Christ. And there's something important that we need to say to these young people about this story that, that they don't hear much at school or, or in our culture. And that is that if you live long enough, each and every one of us is going to be betrayed. Somehow, some way, by someone we love. And there's nothing like betrayal. Nothing hurts like it. Nothing. But just because someone isn't willing or able to love us, to see the truth about us, to know us, doesn't mean that we're unlovable. So when you, when you look at um, Brene, Brene Brown's research on shame and guilt and vulnerability and, and all of that, this is her quote. Just because someone isn't willing or able to love us, it doesn't mean that we are unlovable. Jesus was perfect, friends. He did nothing wrong, and all of this happened to him. And if he wasn't really completely self-aware, which he was, he might have thought, well, what's wrong with me? Why are they treating me like this? Why am I being drugged around like this? Why are they beating me and hurling insults and crucifying me? And the answer is, it wasn't about Jesus at all. It was about them and their fear. And what would they do to him because they needed him to be out of their life because he challenged them he challenged them this christmas i was at a store and i saw a red amaryllis at the store and i was struck by its beauty it made me think of jesus and how beautiful his life was starting with his mom mary and carrying him and giving birth in a cave and i thought how beautiful his life was that he would choose ordinary people like you and me, like Andrew, James, John, Peter, Mary Magdalene, hotheads and swindlers, if you will. Somehow he not only welcomed them, but he made them family. And he healed people like Peter's mother-in-law from a high fever. And he, he picked fishermen and he, he, he would do miraculous things like give them a catch so big that their nets would break. Can you imagine even watching the beauty of Jesus loving and touching the lepers and healing them and the beauty of his grace, of his healing ministry when he, he heals the blind and the deaf and the lame? And finally, of course, Jesus begins raising people from the dead. There was a widow's son in the town called um, Nain. And in the funeral procession, the man was dead and Jesus just came up and touched the coffin and the man sat up and he began to speak. Imagine the power and the beauty of that life. And he had done nothing wrong. 
Not a thing. He feeds 5,000 people at one time. He sends out 72 other people in his name that they would continue his ministry. And he included everyone. Everyone was welcome in his kingdom. He said things like the poor are welcome. The lame are welcome. But when he started... to challenge the powers that be. When he called them hypocrites and they, he struggled, they cut him down. They just cut him down. Now I would remind you that at Ash Wednesday we planted this little bulb we watered it. We changed the water. We put little lamps over it. We wanted it to grow. Didn't do anything wrong. Jesus was just cut down. But it was for, not for no reason that you and I might be free. That in the middle of the arrest scenario where we are about to be tried and condemned justly for what we've done, Jesus steps in. And says, no, take me. But the reason he can do that is because he was unjustly cut down at the cross. So for your action step, I want you to hear what Jesus asks of you, of me, of all of us. And in John 15, Jesus says this. This is my commandment, friends, for you. That you love one another. And not just that you love one another. You love one another as I've loved you. He's given his life for you. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you, and no one has a greater love than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. That's what Jesus says. To lay down your life for others. So I want to ask you this week, as we come into Holy Week, how can you lay down your life? How can you lay aside your rights? Rather than being a right fighter, might we be Lovers of God, lovers of one another. No one has greater love than to lay down our lives for another. And then Jesus says this, I call you friends. You are my friends. If you do what I command you. If you love one another. This is what it is to be a friend of God. A friend of God. Not servants, not slaves. He calls us friends. Will you pray this prayer with me? Jesus, friend of sinners, what friend would stand in my place like you? You presented yourself in my name, taking the wrath that was aimed at me. You offered yourself on the cross, pouring out your precious blood for the cleansing of all my sins. Thank you, Jesus, my friend and my Savior forever. Amen.